You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, good evening, everybody. I am so happy to be here, and I would just like to echo what Pastor Joe said about thanking you uh, for your prayer. I I can tell when I stand in front of a a man in a setting that has been so richly prepared by prayer. It really makes a difference. Now, knowing that makes my subject with you here this evening seem a little bit strange to me. Because, well, there, there's a saying that sometimes people use. It's an old one. I bet half the people in this room won't even know what it means. They used to talk about taking coals to Newcastle. Does anybody know what that phrase means? Boy, just a few. Well, Newcastle was an uh, area in England that, that was rich with coal mining. So there was a lot of coal in Newcastle. So to take coals to Newcastle, well, what's the point? It's like saying I'm taking cheesesteak to Philly. I mean, why? They already got it. Why, why would you do it? Well, tonight what I want to speak to you about is prayer. I feel a little humbled because this is a praying congregation. I saw evidence of it here when I was here Sunday evening. This is a praying congregation. I saw evidence of it all through the week with the outpouring of God, the great blessing of God upon our time together there, which really is, as Pastor Jerry described, it was a time of meeting with the Lord. It wasn't just a conference. It was really a time. And that's, that's all evidence of prayer, not only your prayers, but, but your prayers had a big part in it, and I don't have any doubt. Yet for some strange reason, I, I feel impelled, impressed to, to speak with you this evening about prayer. I don't think it's to correct your bad praying. I want to encourage you just to greater prayer. And how I want to do it is I want to talk about something that in some of your minds might be fairly theological. But actually, when you connect it with prayer, it's eminently practical. What I want to talk to you about tonight is predestination and prayer. So open up in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32. Father, I come before you, and I'm so grateful to stand before this congregation. I thank you for the kindred spirit that Pastor Joe and myself share. And therefore, Lord, I, I, I feel that I share a kindred spirit with this congregation. And so I'm grateful, Lord, to, to speak before people, though I hardly know them. We feel that there's the bond of love in the fellowship of Jesus Christ. So use it, Lord. Use your word to speak to us this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we believe that God is all wise, that God is all good and all powerful. We believe that God is a winner. And in the end, no purpose of his is going to fail. We believe that God has a plan. And that plan stretches from eternity past, literally before he created the world. Did you know that before God created this world, he was scheming out a plan of redemption? And scheming, I mean that in a good way. He was charting it out, planning it. He he had certain aspects of it that, that were so certain that it could be said that they were done even when they were only performed in the heart and the mind of God. 
The Bible speaks of Jesus being the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. No, it didn't actually happen before the foundation of the world, but it was so, if you could say, locked into the plan and the purpose of God that it was just as well as if it had happened before the worlds were ever created. Ladies and gentlemen, God has this plan and he doesn't just talk to us and say, well, I hope it all works out in the end. He doesn't come to you and I say, well, it's just, you know, uh, good luck with all of that. No, we have a much better confidence, we have a much better assurance in a God that knows the end from the beginning, who, who sees into eternity future, as well as having it all planned in eternity past. And, and we believe that God isn't changing the plan along the way, that God isn't making it up as he goes along. But as being all wise, all good, he has it charted out. Now, if we believe all that, then why do we pray? Now, let me clarify the question. I want to make sure we understand exactly what I'm talking about. Why do we pray in the sense of asking God to do things? Now, please, I'm going to take it for granted in such a prayerful congregation as this, that you know that prayer is much more than asking God to do things. You understand that, don't you? That, That prayer is the pouring out of toward God in praise, in gratitude, in simply waiting before him in communion. It's joining our heart, our soul, our words to God and entering in before his presence. Nevertheless, we certainly don't want to deny that a significant aspect of prayer is asking. God wants us to ask us for things, ask him for things. So, using prayer, at least in that limited sense of asking God for things, you might call it petition, you might call it intercession, you might call it supplication, but in some way or another, it's asking God for something. If we believe that God is all-wise, all-powerful, has a predestined plan, has it all worked out, then why do we pray? I mean, God already has a plan. Is God actually going to change his plan because I pray? God has all power and might. Does he really need my help? What do my puny little prayers add to his sovereign power and majesty? And then we could ask the question, God is going to do whatever he wants to do, and nobody's going to stop him. So what good do my prayers do? Do you see how this sort of causes us a question? How do we reconcile our belief in God's great, sovereign, beautiful plan and the idea that it means anything when we pray, when we actually ask God to do something? Well, for a look at that question, I want you to turn, as I asked you to, to Exodus chapter 32. Now, the important thing you need to understand about Exodus chapter 32 is that there's 31 chapters of Exodus that precede it. You see, Exodus is this tremendous book about how God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. They went into Egypt as a large family, I would say. They came out 400 years later as a cohesive nation, numbering in the millions. Oh, you get all sorts of different estimates as to how great, how populous the nation was. But they were a nation, numbering in the millions when they came out of Egypt. So here they come out of Egypt and God intended for them to travel through the wilderness and into the promised land. But God ordained that there be a stopping point along the way. 
Do you know what the stopping point was? Mount Sinai. He intended them for to come and to stay about a year at Mount Sinai. As a matter of fact, all of the second half of the book of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and half of Numbers takes place right there at Mount Sinai. So God brings them through the wilderness, takes them to Mount Sinai, and then God appears to them on Mount Sinai. I want to read this passage to you. It's in Exodus chapter 18, excuse me, chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. I know I told you to turn to Exodus 32, but I'm just getting warmed up to it. Verse 16, Exodus 19. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. Wow. Can you imagine such an event? The entire nation is gathered there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they know that the presence of the Lord is there. They know it because, I love that phrase in there, smoke like a furnace. Do you know what that means? It means just this black smoke that continues to billow forth and doesn't stop. It seems like the mountain is on fire and there's earthquakes and lightning and trembling. And then I can hardly believe it. I just wonder what it was like where it says there was a trumpet blast. Could you imagine what it would be like to hear a trumpet blast and to know that that trumpet had no earthly origin? Now, you're going to hear such a trumpet blast one day. But this was a different thing altogether. This was an announcing, a herald of God's presence. And the trumpet blast sounded longer and longer and just until tension was filling the entire scene until finally Moses said he spoke and then God spoke. And then just at the beginning of chapter 20, God speaks the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel and he speaks the commandments to them from heaven while the nation is at Mount Sinai. Can you imagine such a thing? They heard God pronounce the Ten Commandments. Now, what do you think the reaction was after that? Was the reaction, oh, thank you, God. This is such an amazing spiritual experience. We want more and more of such spiritual experiences. That wasn't the reaction at all, was it? The reaction was, Moses, this really frightens us. Why don't you talk to God in the future? You go up on the mountain, talk to God, and you just tell us what he says. And that's what Moses did from that point on. But the reason why I describe this dramatic experience to you so that you'll know the context of Exodus chapter 32, because the people had had been so impressed with with power and majesty and, and the fearful presence of God. They ate miraculous manna every morning and they drank water that came from miraculous rocks through the day. There was the pillar of cloud, the, the, the cloud of, 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 of the pillar of cloud, I should say, by day, and the pillar of fire by night. The, the, their life was drenched in miraculous demonstrations of who God was and what He was doing. 
Despite all that, the first opportunity they had to sin and rebel, they did. You remember that with Aaron and the golden calf incident? That the people thought Moses was up on the mountain too long because Moses was receiving all kinds of instructions. He was receiving a legal code for Israel that would sort of give instructions to their judges and give structure to their nation. He he was receiving plans for a tabernacle that God would build. He's got the whole thing up there and he's up there for a good number of days and the people are getting tired. Well, where's Moses? We've forgotten all about that smoke. We've forgotten about the lightning. We've forgotten about the thunder. They forgot about it all. And what did they do? They made a golden calf And they started in some immoral rave party around the golden calf. And they said about that calf, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. How do you think God felt about that? Not very happy. God was sorely displeased at this. So here, starting at verse 7 of Exodus chapter 32, we have some of the fallout of Israel, sin, but I just wanted to put it in context for you so you can understand the horror of their sin and the depth of God's reaction right here, starting at verse 7 of Exodus 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They've made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Understand clearly this little conversation that God is having with Moses. God speaks with Moses, and the first thing he says, it's startling, actually. Did you see it there in verse 7? For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Wait a minute. Your people, Moses, who you brought out of the land of Egypt? Now, repeatedly before this and sometime after this, God is very clear to say, I brought you up out of Egypt. You are my people. But, But it's so dramatic right here that you can't miss the point. God is as if he were disowning his people before Moses. It's as if God is washing his hands of his people. Moses, do you know what your people are doing down there? It's just like you do as parents. When when the child's acting up, what do you say? Your son is really acting up. It's common, isn't it? Well, this is exactly what God was doing with Moses. Your people are doing it again. Your people have made this golden calf. I see it all. None of it's hidden from from my eyes. Which, by the way, should always gives us a little bit of pause, doesn't it? The illusion that we have in our minds sometimes of secret sin. Instead of understanding that God sees it from heaven, he doesn't miss a beat. So he sees it, he perceives it. He says, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, they have turned aside quickly. Actually, that's a very merciful understatement from God. Turned aside quickly. They, they, as soon as they could, they ran off into the grossest idolatry. Turned aside is actually a very gentle way for God to state it. And he says it there in verse 8. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it. The, the people wanted to reject God. They wanted to ignore God. And it's as if now God speaks to Moses and says, I'll wash my hands of it. I'm done with them. They're your people, Moses. They're not my people. Keep all of this in mind. Look at verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, 
I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Does everybody understand what God said to Moses? He repeats it. I've seen what's going on. Verse 9. I've seen these people. Indeed, it's a stiff-necked people. It's as if God was saying to Moses, I've seen enough. And because he's seen enough, he makes a remarkable offer to Moses. Did you pick up on the offer there in verses 9 and 10? The offer is very simple. I'll wipe them out and start all over again with you, Moses. I will, as he says in verse 10, consume Israel, and I'll start all over again with you. Verse 10, I will make of you a great nation. I just want everybody to understand it very clearly, what God was saying. God said to Moses, Moses, leave me alone. I'll wipe them out, and I'll start again with you. Now, hypothetically, God could have done this and still fulfilled every promise that he ever made to Abraham. Because was not Moses a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Of course he was. He could have, hypothetically, wiped out the entire people of Israel, started all over again just with Moses, and still been in fulfillment of his covenant. It would have been too bad for the multitude, the millions that came out of Egypt. But after all, who would have say they didn't deserve it? When God gave him that amazing demonstration of his power, his glory, his majesty on Mount Sinai, when they heard the audible voice of God speak from heaven, and yet despite hearing that, they thumbed their noses at God and made a gold calf and worshipped that gold calf as the God that brought them out of Egypt. God would have been fully within his rights to just say, I'm writing you off, I'm finished with you people. Moses, I'm still going to fulfill my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'll never break my word. I'll just do it through you now. And maybe people will say in the future, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. And you'll be a new patriarch of the people of Israel. We'll just scratch the slate clean. We'll do it all over again. Matter of fact, do you get the feeling of it in verse 10? Look at those words again. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. God didn't ask for the opinion of Moses in this. Did he? Moses, I'm thinking about this. What's your take on this? Let's discuss this a little bit. Here's my plan. He didn't ask for Moses' participation in the matter. All he simply told Moses was, let me alone so I can do this. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how we can escape the clear presentation of Scripture here. That if Moses had done nothing, God's plan as declared in verses 9 and 10 would have gone ahead. Does anybody think this was like a game of chicken? That, that, that actually God was just sort of playing along with Moses. And God was hoping that Moses wouldn't say, okay, go ahead, Lord. Go ahead and do it. And then God would say, oh, you caught me. I never intended to do it. I was just fooling. I was just kidding. Nobody thinks that in this room, do they? Is God such a deceiver? Does God play word games like that? I don't think there's any other way than we can regard this than simply to say, God laid this out before Moses and in sincerity said, I'll wipe them all out and start over again. Just do nothing and that's what I'll do. Yet Moses 
refused to do nothing. Moses did something. And look at what he did. Verse 11. It's remarkable. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them and kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have spoken of, I will give to your descendants that they may inherit it forever. Moses refused to do nothing, but in verse 11, he did something. He pled, he pleaded with the Lord his God. He did not fatalistically say, well, hey, whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. No, instead, he pleaded with the Lord. Now notice this, according to what he believed God's heart to be. By the way, I don't know if you notice verses 11, 12, and 13. It's not a particularly long prayer. You can read that prayer probably in less than one minute. It's not a particularly long prayer. Oh, but it was a strong prayer. This was a prayer that literally changed history. History could have gone in one direction or another. It could have gone in the direction of God wiping out Israel and starting all over again with just Moses or continuing on with the nation as it was. Two paths, a fork in the middle of the road. It was going to go one way or another. And God says, listen, this train, it's rolling down the track. It's coming to this fork. Moses, you're at the switch. What, what, what will you do with that switch? And Moses leans against it with all of his heart and he pleaded with the Lord, his God. And I love the basis on which he appealed to the Lord. Did you notice? I think there's at least four bases. Maybe you could look and find even more, but I think there's at least four there. Did you notice it? Verse 11, you've surely noticed that. The first basis on which he appealed to the Lord was that he appealed to the Lord on the basis of ownership. He, so to speak, gave the people back to the Lord. You remember what the Lord said to Moses. Your people whom you brought out of Egypt, Moses. Well, what does Moses do in verse 11? He says, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Don't push them off on me, God. These people belong to you. They're your problem. They're your responsibility. I plead with you to recognize that. Friends, this is a great basis for intercession. It's a great basis for pleading with the Lord. Lord, this belongs to you. Lord, this church, this congregation, this is your church. It's your congregation, Jesus. You declared an ownership over it. Jesus, this problem belongs to you. This family belongs to you. My son or my daughter, they belong to you over and over again. To plead the Lord's ownership over it is an effective way to appeal to God. And that's what Moses did first. Then he did something second. Look at it there. It's also in verse 11 where Moses appealed to God on the basis of grace. He says, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. Now, now friends, did the people of Israel deserve to be delivered from Egypt? No. They weren't even particularly looking for a deliverer. The first time Moses raised himself up to offer himself as a deliverer for Israel, what did they do? They rejected him. And he had to flee to the wilderness and live there for 40 more years. 
They weren't particularly hot on the trail of a deliverer. It's as if they weren't looking for it. They didn't particularly, they were just stuck in their slavery and their degradation. God had to pull them out of Egypt. And he did it out of his grace. Moses reminds the Lord of this. Lord, we didn't deserve to be brought out of Egypt to begin with. You did it all by your grace, not because we deserved it. Please, Lord, don't stop dealing with us by grace. And that's a second great powerful uh, plea before God. Lord, I come to you on the basis of your grace. I don't try to, to pretend I deserve this, Lord. I don't pretend I deserve it. The person I'm praying for it deserves it. No, Lord, we're coming on a completely different basis. We're coming on the basis of faith and grace. I'm not here to earn something before you by my holiness or even by the passion of my prayer. I'm here to simply receive what you freely offer because you are a God of grace. Look at what you've done already in my life, Lord. Everything you've done already has been a work of grace. Now, Lord, I come to you again on that same appeal. Please do your work of grace in my life. That's the second appeal. The first one was ownership. The second one was grace. The third one, verse 12. This is fascinating. The third one is when Moses appealed to God on the basis of glory. He said, why should the Egyptians speak evil of you, God? Why? You know, God, you can do this. You can wipe out all the people of Israel and start all over again. But, you know, that's going to give you a bad name in front of the Egyptians. The Egyptians are going to say that that you brought them out of Egypt just to do this to them in the wilderness. Lord, I'm concerned for your glory. I don't want to see you get a bad name. For the sake of your own name, your own glory, Lord, please deliver your people. Please have mercy on them. The, the, The Egyptians are going to think of you as a cruel God who led your people out to the desert to kill them. Lord, don't let anybody think that about you. It's always, always a valid plea before God to plead to him on the basis of his glory. Lord, my passion is for your glory, for your honor, for, for the extension of your kingdom. Do it, Lord, because it'll bring honor to you. And, and listen, I know very well that you know and I don't always know how God will best glorify himself. Now, all we can do is read the situation to the best of our ability and trust that God will guide us along the way if we happen to be wrong. But the bottom line is we just need to have this passion for God's glory, for for his honor, and to pray in light of that. So the first one was on the basis of ownership. The second one was on the basis of grace. The third one was on the basis of glory. Now look, verse 13 tells us about the fourth basis. It's on the basis of God's goodness. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. Now he appeals to God on the basis of his goodness, especially the goodness to his promise. Lord, keep your promises. You are a good God who's always faithful. Don't break your promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I know that hypothetically you could start all over with me again, but that's not how it seems it should happen, Lord. Please, please don't break your promise to Abraham, Isaac, in Jacob. Friends, all I can say is that is a powerful fourfold appeal before God. They belong to you, Lord. You've already shown so much grace, Lord. Show more, please. Bring glory to your name, O Lord. That's my passion. And finally, be good to your promises, Lord. Show your goodness in your promises. What do you think God's going to do with this request that Moses gave? God says, Moses, let me at him. And Moses says, no, Lord, for all these four reasons that I've described, please don't, Lord. Relent from your wrath. Relent from what the people deserve. And look at what it says there in verse 14. 
So the Lord relented from the harm which he said that he would do to his people. It's very plain, isn't it, that God answered Moses' prayer. If somebody has another explanation, please come on up to me afterwards and explain this. If anybody can explain this any other way than to say that God said he was going to destroy the nation, Moses prayed, and therefore God did not destroy the nation. It certainly seems what the text says to me. All Moses had to do was to leave God alone and let him do it. But Moses would not leave God alone. He would pray. And in this powerful intercession, according to what he believed the heart of God, he won salvation or at least rescue for that nation. That's why it says in verse 14, so the Lord relented. Now, if you have a old King James Bible in front of you, This is how the verse reads. It reads this. The Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Now, based on this, I've actually heard people teach at times that sometimes God needs to repent of evil or that God changes his mind. I don't believe that that's what this verse is saying at all. God never has to repent of evil. And God never changes his mind, at least not in the sense that we think of it. It's helpful to read maybe some other translations of this passage. Listen to this as I read you, for example, from the NIV. It says, then the Lord relented, very much like the New King James Version. Or the New American Standard, it says this, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said that he would do to his people. The Amplified Version says this, the Lord turned from the evil which he had thought to do. Or the Septuagint Bible says this, the Lord was moved with compassion to save his people. But friends, let's understand this in the big picture. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19 says this. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do? Now there are some people who say that these two passages uh, contradict each other. Occasionally, combatants come to me with a list of Bible contradictions. And sometimes this says, ooh, the Bible contradicts itself. How about this? You know, uh, Exodus chapter 32 says that God repented, and Numbers chapter 23 says that God never repents. Ooh, I got you on that one. You know what I think is funny about those lists of contradictions? Is I can always think of much more difficult Bible problems than they can ever think of. I, I never tell them that. But after studying the Bible for a while, look, I know the ones that we really have to think through and approach. Now, of course, I have complete confidence in the scriptures, but, but they don't even know some of the most difficult ones to deal with. But friends, this isn't difficult in the slightest. Because we can understand these passages by understanding that Moses wrote with what we call anthropomorphic or man-centered language. Moses described the actions of God as they appeared to him. Please look at verse 14 again. Is verse 14 a quotation from the Lord? Is God saying, so I repent, or so I change my... He's not saying that. It's Moses describing God's action. And as Moses describes God's action, he describes it in the only terminology that he can describe it, as it appears to him. 
You could say that as it appeared to him, Moses' prayer did change God. And you could even say that it changed the standing of the people in God's sight. The people were now in a place of mercy where before they were in a place of judgment. And it changed the position of the people. Sometimes people get frustrated with the Bible because it will describe God's actions in human terms. Now, we understand that there's limitations to this. When it says that God hears or God speaks or God sees, I can't tell you that it's exactly like we hear. I hope it's better than we hear. I know it is. But it's the only analogy that the scriptures can use that will connect with us. And so we just simply understand that the Bible uses human terminology and it uses it imperfectly, but it's the best that we can do to describe the greatness and the goodness and the glory of our God. I mean, really, how else would we describe it? I like what Charles Spurgeon said. He said this, I suppose that I need not say that this verse speaks after the manner of men. I, don't know not, I do not know after what other manner we can speak. To speak, after, to speak of God after the manner of God is reserved for God himself. And mortal man cannot comprehend such speech. In this sense, the Lord often speaks, not according to the literal fact, but according to the appearance of things to us, in order that we may understand so far as the human can comprehend the divine. And by the way, we can also add this, that God did not go back on his word to either Moses or Israel. We understand this, that whenever God announces judgment, inherent in the announcement of judgment is an invitation to repentance. And if people will repent, then who knows what God may do? God may relent. You'll find a very similar example in the book of Jonah. What was the message that Jonah preached as a prophet of the Lord to Nineveh? Forty days and judgment is coming. It's 40 days, wasn't it? Something like that. Forty days and judgment is coming upon Nineveh. Here it comes. Did judgment come after 40 days? No, it didn't. Did that make Jonah a false prophet? Not in the slightest, because his announcement of judgment, his warning of judgment, was actually an invitation to repentance as well. And when the people repented, and friends, they repented so radically in Nineveh that they put the sackcloth of mourning for sin on their livestock to see a cow dressed in mourning. That's mourning. The people repented so thoroughly that God said, okay, okay, I will relent from my judgment. My my warning of judgment has had its desired effect. And that's exactly the case that it had here in Moses. So God did not destroy Israel. And he knew that he would not destroy Israel. Yet he deliberately put Moses in this crucial place of intercession so that Moses would display, so that Moses would develop God's heart for the people, a heart of love, a heart of compassion. Moses prayed just as God wanted him to, as if heaven and earth, salvation and destruction depended upon his prayer. And that is how God waits for us to pray. You see, we understand that what this means is that God wanted Moses to pray as if everything depended upon his prayer. I just bring to you the question again. What would have happened if Moses did not pray? Two paths. It would have gone according to one path or another. Are we to suppose that God from heaven 
exchanged a few winks with Moses and said something like this, come on, Moses, pray. You know I'm really not going to destroy the people, but just put on a little show for me so that we can put something in my word. You know, just pray and wink, wink. We all know I'm not going to do it. No, Moses didn't feel that for a moment. Moses felt with every fiber of his being that this is important, that this matters. Everything in the story tells us that if Moses didn't pray, the people were destroyed. And that's exactly the attitude that we're to have. We're supposed to think from reading this account that everything depended on Moses' prayer. And so you can ask, what happens if people don't pray? A few years ago, and when I say a few, as I think back on it, this is probably eight, nine, maybe even ten years ago. I'm there at a church, visiting a church. It's sort of a special day. They're dedicating a new church building. And so there's a few visiting pastors there. And one of the pastors there is the man who was my predecessor at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, uh, Ricky Ryan. I think many of you in this congregation, you know who Ricky Ryan is. Well, Ricky Ryan, he's a man of bold prayer. Sometimes uncomfortably bold prayer. I mean, I've seen Ricky pray some bold prayers that you're like, wow, Ricky, should you really be praying that bold? And on that day, I just happened to introduce to Ricky a, a dear woman that I knew. She was from this congregation that we were both visiting, but I knew this woman, and this woman had been diagnosed with MS, and she was in rapid decline. And I said, Ricky, I want you to meet Sheila. Sheila's this wonderful woman, just great. You know, this is her. Ricky, would you remember to pray for her? Well, for Ricky, you know, to remember to pray, that's no good. Let's pray right now. And so he he put his hands on her shoulders and he started praying. And it was one of those prayers. I can't remember exactly what the words were, but it was uncomfortable for me how bold Ricky was in his prayer. And I'm just like, oh, Ricky, you know, you probably shouldn't be praying that bold. Don't get her hopes up. You know, I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't know where it's all going to go. But he did. He prayed that bold. And I have to say that there was just a sense of the Spirit of God about it. That this wasn't just a figment of Ricky's imagination or enthusiasm. But that genuinely he's being guided by the Spirit of God to pray such a bold prayer in that particular situation. And so he prayed. And then, well, that was it. And we all just went on to doing other things that evening. Within the next couple weeks, I heard from Sheila. She had gone to the doctor and found out that her problem wasn't MS at all, but it was something that was completely treatable, and they gave her the treatment, and she was absolutely fine. Now, I know what people would say. Listen, I I can do the logic just as much as my... The prayer didn't mean anything. Her condition was that same all the time. It didn't change anything. You know, it was just there, and, you know, God bless Ricky, and it was not... No! Ricky prayed as if everything depended upon it. Because as far as he was concerned at that moment, I believe inspired by the Holy Spirit, everything did depend upon it. And God honored such a prayer. Now that was a dramatic example of it. You and I both know that that we can't um, dictate to God what he will do and how we will glorify himself. The whole point of it is this. We need to put aside cold, passionless prayers. We need to put aside prayers that imply in any way that they don't actually really matter, maybe for some theological reason. 
I like what the imprisoned Paul wrote to the Philippians. He wrote this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In Paul's mind, his deliverance depended upon the prayers of the Philippians. It wasn't just a pious excuse. Now, some people say this. They say, Prayer doesn't change God, it just changes me. Now listen, I agree completely that prayer, when it's rightly done, it does transform the one who prays. But ladies and gentlemen, prayer is far greater than some self-improvement project. It's not just some self-help therapy that you practice upon yourself prayer when it's effective, when it's believing, when it's founded upon the promises of God. Prayer moves the hand of God. And here's another thing I would suggest to you, that living under the new covenant, we don't have less privilege in prayer than Moses had. We have more. We don't have less access to God than Moses had. We have more. The only thing we may have less of than Moses is Moses' heart for the people. Now, this doesn't mean that we pray and God gives us whatever we ask for. Oh, no, I don't mean that to apply for a moment. Sometimes our desires are ungodly and they need to be changed. Sometimes our desires are unwise and they need to be guided. Sometimes our understanding is limited and we pray for the wrong things, even with good intention. Sometimes our wisdom is very small and we end up asking for things that aren't good for ourselves or for others. And thank you, God, that sometimes in his wonderful and his best answer is to say no. Many people in this room, you can thank God for prayers that he said no to. Think of that old girlfriend or boyfriend that you had. Aren't you happy that God said no? You see, we think through this and God knows. He has his wisdom. And this explains why God sometimes says no to some of his favorite people when they pray. And there's some striking examples in the scriptures of no prayer. David prayed that the life of his little son would be spared. And that child went to be with the Lord. Elijah prayed. This is one of my favorite no answers to prayer. Elijah prayed that he would die. Do you remember that one? Elijah prays that he would die. And not only did he not die then, God made sure he never died. And he was carried up into a whirlwind into heaven. That's God showing you. That's a no prayer. Oh, when Paul prayed for the removal of his thorn in the flesh, and God said, well, no, but you could say it was a no, but. No, but my grace is sufficient for you. Friends, I wanted to be deeply impressed upon your soul. Our prayers, our actions, in some way affect God's eternal plan. Intertwine with, work with, I don't know what terminology you want to use, but but how you live your life and how you pray and how you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, it matters. Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah and for Lot, and it mattered before God. Joshua commanded the day to be lengthened and the sun to stand still. And it mattered for God and for Israel. Joash sent three arrows to the ground and he would then win three battles against Syria. But if he would have sent more arrows, he would have won more battles. 
What he did mattered. And Daniel prayed until an angel came with an answer to his prayer, persisting in prayer for more than 20 days. I I have to assume that if Daniel would have stopped praying at day 15, the answer would have never come. All I'm simply saying is that this lesson is very clear. Yes, it's true. God is sovereign and mighty. And it's a great plan of the ages that he's working out through history. And yet, according to what we know from the Bible, how we live our life matters. How we pray matters. Our prayers can be the difference. From everything we know from our perspective, our prayers can be the difference between heaven and hell. But between peace and torment, between forgiveness and bitterness, between light and darkness, in some cases between health and sickness, between freedom and bondage, between love and hate, between fruitfulness and barrenness. Our prayers matter. We must never, ever become fatalistic about prayer. It matters. I look at the clock and I want to give you one quick final example of fatalism that I think God would have us reject with all of our minds. This example comes from Matthew chapter 25. Turn there if you would. Matthew chapter 25, verse 24. Did you remember the parable of the talents where Jesus illustrated the work of his kingdom by saying that a master was going off on a journey and he gave talents to different ones of his servants and he was going to see what the different servants did with the talents. You remember that parable? did, Did you ever closely read what the unfaithful servant did with his talents? What his whole reasoning was? It's really sort of interesting. At least it's interesting to me. I hope it'll be interesting to you. Notice. The unfaithful servant in the parable of talents who did nothing with his talent. Why did he do nothing with it? Because he was convinced that his master was so mighty that his master didn't need his help. Look at it. It's right there. Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 24. Then he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. And did you notice that? What was his reasoning? What's his rationale? Master, you don't need my help. You reap where you have not sown. By the way, if you can reap where you haven't sown, I don't know if there's any farmers here, you're doing pretty good. He says again, And you gathered where you have not scattered seed. That's another way of saying you reap where you have not sown. Friends, if you can reap where you've never sown seed, you're all powerful. And that's what the servant's rationale was. You don't need my help. You're all powerful. Therefore, what I did is I did nothing. I did nothing with what you gave me because you don't need my help. Look at the master's reaction. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and I gather where I have not scattered seed. 
So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But to him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see the fatalistic attitude of the unfaithful servant? You are so powerful, you don't need me. I wonder if there's anybody who harbors that thought from time to time when they think about God in his work. Put it far from your mind. Put it far from your heart. And the point of it all is to live as if your life really matters because it does. To pray as if your prayers really matter, because they do. And the prayers that matter the most are the prayers that connect with the heart of God and pray for that heart to be brought into reality, just as Moses did on Mount Sinai. Well, Father, that's my prayer for myself and for these precious people. I think, Lord, in some sense, this is such a praying congregation. What more could they learn about prayer? But then I remember, Lord, we, we all can learn more. And we can all be prodded into just greater experience and greater understanding of the good that you do in our lives. So, Father, I pray that you would, that you would impress upon each one of us this firm, settled conviction that both our lives and our prayers matter. That though you are mighty, you are sovereign, we, we recognize your great plan and we take comfort in it. None of that for a moment negates the meaningfulness of our lives or our prayers. Inspire us, Lord, to a deeper pursuit of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.